Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR, Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Chris Breen, who is a member of the socialist group Solidarity and as also he will be speaking on behalf of the Teachers' Union. Well... He's actually a teachers' union activist on the AU Council. So he's made it very clear that he's not going to be speaking on behalf of anybody, really, but we're just going to be speaking um, very frankly, giving news and analysis about what's happening with... what happened with the protests and the protests that were happening in the builders' construction industry. And I'm, I will be covering really the pandemic in the context of what's been happening there and looking at the position um, of the union as well to an extent. So I thought I'd invite Chris really just to, to talk about what's been happening because it really has been a very, very prominent um, story in the news. And then after that, we will be speaking with Leanne Carter, who's a Wiradjuri and Noongar woman and parent of four children. She's working at the Fitz, Aboriginal Fitzroy Legal Service. And we're going to be speaking with her about a media release that's re recently been put out by the Human Rights Law Centre. And we will speak to her about a legal challenge um, a legal challenge that has been launched to secure fair access to the age pension for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we'll be speaking with her about closing the gap. And then after that, we'll be speaking with Simone Cameron, who is, um, will be speaking about the Tamil family and what's happened with visas there. It appears that three members of the family have um, been granted temporary visas for 12 months. So we'll be looking at some of that and some of the inequalities of the decision. So, yeah, we'll be speaking with Chris very shortly. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.04 and you're about to listen to an interview with Chris Breen. Hello Chris, welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me on. And just before you start, I should clarify that I am absolutely not speaking on behalf of the Australian Education No, Union. no, you're not. Definitely not. And I just, I, I I'm a, a sub-branch rep and I've had to deal with um, you know, yes, members who've got concerns about mandatory vaccination, but I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of the union. No, no, no. And I did stipulate that on air. I did say that yep. you're not going to be speaking on behalf of <coughs> anybody. And, that we're, and I'm glad you've clarified that for listeners to make that clear. Because we've got to be very careful here, you know, like really this interview, the aim of this interview is to look at news and analysis, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah, just to look at news and analysis and your perspective as an activist. Thanks. Yeah, all good. Are you comfortable now? Absolutely. Let's, let's proceed. Okay, so can you um, start off just by talking a little bit about... Um, what's been going on? Victoria um, is, is, has shut down construction for two weeks after anti-vaccine mandate protest, and there's quite a lot involved, in the, isn't it? Can you take us through what's been going on? Sure. Um, I mean, the <clears throat> the issue of um, mandatory vaccination has, you know, suddenly become a big one for a, a lot of uh, workers. Uh, teachers need to get their first dose by October the 18th and construction workers and a union were quite surprised when last Thursday uh, the state government announced that basically uh, they had a week in which to uh, get uh, their first vaccine or their jobs were at stake. Um, and this, uh, I think, you know... <laughs> took a lot of people by surprise, I mean, particularly because you had Scott Morrison saying for so long, it's not a race, it's not a race. There were huge delays in the vaccine being available to people and all of a sudden people's jobs are at um, risk. And so there was a, um, a, a protest um, outside the uh, CFMEU offices on um, uh, Monday last week, um, that started early in the morning uh, with about 10 uh, people, if you go and look at some of the videos, who all looked to be uh, construction workers and it, um, it built through the day. Uh, it got much bigger uh, around uh, one, which was actually because a whole lot of construction workers who'd had worked, had, had come off the jobs over a, a separate, um, separate thing, which, which made them available to go down. And there's been a lot of commentary in the mainstream media uh, amongst, you know, different bits of the broad left that these were, you know, uh, fascist mobs attacking the union. But I think the, 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 the truth is quite uh, different. Um, people have also said it was fake tradies. Uh, but again, if people go and have a look at those protests, it was overwhelmingly... Uh, construction workers, um, they, uh, you know, John Seck uh, uh, came down to talk to them at one point. There was some who, a delegation that went up into uh, Setka's office. He wouldn't have done that if they weren't union members, if they were just Nazis, he, you know. Certainly there were far-right people who put out a call once the thing had started for people to come down. Um, but I, I don't think we should boost, <laughs> you know, the... the image that the right wing have of themselves. They're not able to mobilise uh, 500 construction workers. Uh, the, the, the immediate thing that mobilised those construction workers was the uh, question of mandatory vaccines and immediately the question of their jobs. Um, you listen to when Setka comes down to speak, they're chanting, Johnny, 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 lead the way, lead the way. Um, you know, we want our union to stand with us, not against us. And the, uh, the construction union had taken a position of pro-vaccine uh, but against mandatory vaccinations. And members had come down to ask the union, well, what were they, you know, uh, doing about it? Um, and certainly, you know, uh, made messier by the, the far right trying to claim it. But I think that was the, the, the guts of um, what happened and uh, even though the, the union had taken that position, on the day of the announcement, uh, Setka had effectively backed down from that on radio on 3AW. He was asked what would he do if members were sacked and he didn't have an answer. 
he says it is what it is. Sometimes extreme measures call for ex- extreme circumstances, call for extreme measures. And so it's not surprising there was concern. Uh, the, I mean, the other thing there is that around uh, lunchtime, a bit after, uh, there'd been a proposal that came from the union for uh, six hours with eight hours um, uh, pay uh, to keep the industry going to avoid the, the lunch breaks. And some sites had supported that and some people had concerns that it was breaking the EBA. They didn't have breaks. And if you listen to some of the interviews with workers who went down, that was another thing that they wanted to um, get clarity from the union about. So I think it's dangerous to write them all off as far-right fascists. I, I just don't think that was the nature of the protest. Um, in the days afterwards, it's clear that the, <clears throat> the calls went out and there were just, you know, uh, I think it has morphed into general anti-lockdown protest and the construction contingent, contingents on that have dwindled uh, to, you know, so it's, it's, <clears throat> it's I, think, I think there is a, a distinction between that first day on the Monday and what happened um, afterwards. But I think um, mandatory vaccination is um, an issue. Uh, you know, there's a range of unions who've taken a position against um, mandatory vaccination. So there are a number of issues here then, Chris, and thank you so much for for clarifying all that. But first off, with the, the mandatory vaccinations, why wasn't that explained to the tradies a bit more clearly and then there wouldn't, wouldn't have been this mess? Um, I think the union was taken by surprise as much as the the tradies. I mean, now some of that obviously lies in the hands of the state government Absolutely. and the way that they've dealt with the announcement. Uh, but I, I do think if the union had have come out with a clear position, you know, we are for vaccination, we'll run health campaigns on work sites, uh, but actually we will stand up for any member who's, um, you know, who's... who's threatened with their job, I think it would have undercut the ground of any of the right trying to claim it. You know, we all know people who are vaccine hesitant, um, and I don't think, uh, you know, they deserve to lose their jobs. You know, I've I've known individuals quite well who are vaccine hesitant, and you keep talking, and you can change people's minds, but... I mean, there's no evidence in Australia that vaccine hesitancy is a huge um, problem. Australia's easily going to get to over 80% without any mandates, probably to 90%. If you look at places like Europe, the country with the highest vaccination rate in Europe is Spain. It's got no vaccine mandates. It it worked on trust. Um, it, It didn't need them. And so I think you ask, so why is that coming in here? I think it's a, it's a political uh, move. Um, so as Australia opens up again, uh, there's not going to be any of the lockdown measures in place. And I think for a long time there's been a... Um, the lockdown has been used to blame ordinary people rather than the failures of government for the spread of COVID. So, you know, look at this rule breaker here. This person doesn't have a mask. That truck is driven interstate again and again in the media. When that's, those measures are, are gone, uh, that, that narrative goes. And, but I, I think the, the mandatory vaccination allows governments to replace um, if there is an upsurge in COVID cases. Well, look, these people didn't get vaccinated. Um, and again, it's that kind of um, finger pointing. Absolutely. When it all comes down to insecure work and coupled with the failure of, of uh, quarantine systems. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out as well that unions um, overseas have taken a vastly different approach uh, than some of the unions here, although, you know, even in Australia, it's um, it's, it's mixed. Uh, so in Greece, um, there have recently been 6,000 health workers suspended for not getting <coughs> vaccine by September. And Greece health workers have had six strikes over the issue uh, since August. Um, including on the 1st of September occupying management offices in hospitals for an hour. Um, they were pro-vaccine strikes, but the, they, they were saying don't force our colleagues out. They're saying the health system was already understaffed by 35,000 people and sacking 5,000 is going to make the... 6,000, sorry, is going to make the, the COVID crisis worse. And the fact that unions took that up 
meant the right, which has been far more influential than Greece and here, had, had nowhere to run with it. Wow. So basically what you're saying here is that you're not... It's not about being anti-vaccine. It's, also, it's just saying that you can actually give out a lot of health messaging to help people to get vaccinated rather than forcing people into vaccines. Yeah, I, I think the, the mandatory vaccination no, I think risks pushing people who are vaccine-hesitant into outright opposition. Uh, in my own school, like, a, you know, I got um, an email from a, a long-term union member who joined on some of the, you know, the refugee actions, uh, not a right-wing person by any stretch of the imagination, uh, <clears throat> basically saying, uh, sent an email to the, the head of the union saying, please support us, that they weren't anti-vax, but they didn't want to be bullied and coerced into it. And I think that sort of hesitancy, it's a minority, uh, but <clears throat> we need to keep having a conversation. I think <clears throat> unions could play a role in doing, you know, uh, uh, getting health workers or doctors to do tours of workplaces. I think the vaccine should come to every workplace so it goes to where people are at. I think there's a particular issue in, you know, marginalised communities, Aboriginal communities that have got low level of vaccination because the vaccine hasn't got out to them. I think that, you know, that primarily, though, that the, the, the problem with the vaccine rollout is on the heads of the Morrison government, not on the handful of <coughs> individuals who are unsure about it. Absolutely, given that there was, there's been a slow roll, rollout. We're nearing the end of the interview, but um, just to, to also comment, too, that there is definitely far right and there are definitely Nazis at work, though, in, in Australia. There are, it, the movement is yeah. alive and well there. Uh, there are Nazis in Australia. Uh, you know, that's a, 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 a sad thing. Um, and, you know, the, uh, <laughs> but I don't think we want to, uh, you know, and they're, all, they're, they're always desperately looking for uh, relevance. And I think we always have to be careful not to boost them uh, in the way that they want to grandstand uh, in a role far beyond, uh, you know, their, their capacity. They're not on uh, every work site. They're not out mobilising hundreds of construction members. There is there is a risk that the the right is trying to play on people's fears when you know unions don't take up uh, uh, you know members' concerns. Uh, but I you know I, I'm not for exaggerating the the role that the, the far right plays. Chris, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Um, it's been great to have you, and, and I really also wanted to give a shout-out to also our prisoners and refugees and also Aboriginals um, in, in the Aboriginal communities where it's under-resourced and they're not able to get access to the vaccine as much as um, the cities. Yeah. No, I mean, I should add, if, we, if there are Nazis on any demonstrations, we should kick them off. If they're on union demonstrations, you kick them off. But... Um... <coughs> The, the, the demonstration outside the CFMEU was not was not uh, 500 Nazis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I think it's good what you've that you've um, highlighted those issues, but I suppose I'm just saying that there there is there still is a we've got to be careful that there isn't that rise. I mean, look at Germany for example. Yeah. Um, Germany, what now in the 30s? What now? Uh, yes, the yeah. you know the the far right has you know is is a is a scary threat. Um, you know, I mean, mostly the, the far right has used anti-immigrant, anti-refugee racism. It's been important to start stand around that, um, but they're also using uh, concerns around <coughs> lockdown, which I mean, the, but lockdown has had an unequal impact on people, and yeah. I think there probably hasn't been enough criticism from the left of those measures and alternatives. I mean, particularly when you look at lockdown policing, or even at the CPM using the other day, there was, you know, rubber bullets and tear gas used against union members. Correct. I, I don't think anybody can say that that's an acceptable thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there's troops in the streets of Sydney. Uh, the You know, it's... <laughs> I think the the unions haven't been on the streets for so long. They've called for some of the right things, for pandemic leave, uh, for, for vaccine leave, for adequate income support, but there, there needs to be weight put behind uh, those kind of things. Absolutely. 
Chris, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been indeed a, an extremely refreshing perspective. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Free Palestine Melbourne has organised a forum. When prison is a weapon, the Palestinian reality. Go to fpmelbourne.org. That's fpmelbourne.org to register. The event's October 3 from 8 till 9.30pm. Included will be Nadia Dukka from Palestine, Bassam Tamimi from Palestine, our own Yusuf Rimawi here from Melbourne, and it will be chaired by Melissa from Free Palestine Melbourne. Again, the event is October 3 from 8 till 9.30. Go to fpmelbourne.org. Hope to see you there. A 3CR supporter. back with the doing time show and you just heard the interview with chris breen and yeah speaking about the the pandemic and the the protests um recently a federal court case has been launched against the morrison government seeking fair and equal access to the age pension for aboriginal and torres strait islander people and there's been a media release put out by the human rights law center but i've hopefully managed to speak to, to get an interview with Leanne Carter, who is from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and she's the Justice Programs Leader, and I would like to speak to her shortly about what's been going on with this court case. Hello, Leanne. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. How are you? Good, thank you. Look, my apologies for keeping you waiting there. There are so many issues emerging from the pandemic. It's incredible. Uh, I was listening in, actually, and I've been watching the news pretty vigilantly lately. Yeah, it's a bit crazy, isn't it, Leanne? It is. <laughs> Especially depending on where you're going as well. Oh, yeah. Leanne, would you just be able to tell listeners what land you're from? Um, Wurundjeri and Noongar. Beautiful. So let's talk about what's what's happened with the federal court case and talk a little bit about closing the the gap and and could you just give us a little bit of background about what's been going on with um with the 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 launch the legal challenge Absolutely so at the moment this particular challenge we're bringing is under the racial discrimination act and it's about it's talking about if you know a group of people enjoy a right you know or someone enjoys more limited rights to the extent of others not having that same right, then the Commonwealth should actually change the laws. And this is exactly what's taking place with the aged care pension at the moment. And over a decade or so ago, as we know, the Australian government committed to closing the gap on life expectancy, on health issues, on housing, you know, on various, on various issues that are affecting and impacting on our Aboriginal communities. And one of those relevant gaps that we're talking about today in relation to the aged care pension is the life expectancy. So what's happened is in order to get the aged care pension, you have to be 66 and a half years um, of age. Now, as we know, Aboriginal people are not living that long. So the life expectancy of Aboriginal people is around nine years less than that of non-Indigenous people. And that is obviously affected, you know, that's affected by a lot of things such as health and access to medical care, you know, particularly as we were saying before about vaccines in regional areas and, you know, where the health services are culturally informed. So the government made a commitment in 2008 to actually close the gap. Now, that has not taken place. And the gap itself is not just about life expectancy, as I said, but it's about health comes. And if there's not proper health comes, and that means that our people are dying at a much earlier stage in their lives than what non-Indigenous people are. So they're not even reaching the age of being eligible for the age pension. Wow. So, so this, this um, challenge is against Scott Morrison because he's not prepared to um, lower the pension age from under 67? That's correct. So at the moment, it's 
because people are living longer, the aged care pension is you've got to reach 66 years, 66 and a half years old. But because people are living longer, by the, by 2023, it's going to go up to 67 years of age before you're eligible, which means that, you know, currently, if you're not living that long, you're not getting no benefit of all the work or, you know, the contributions that you've made, etc. So this particular challenge is aimed at making the Victorian government, well, making the government take account for the life expectancy, you know, into account when they're determining the eligibility because the life expectancy rates are a result of discriminatory practices, as we know, which has impacted significantly on Aboriginal people. Absolutely. Leanne, would you be able to just um, get a bit closer to the phone? Oh, I apologise. That's better. No, you're good. You're going to just want to make sure that, that listeners hear every word. <laughs> you're pretty good. I just wanted to just get a bit of a clearer reception there. I apologise. So the case... That's OK. The case will argue then that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be able to access the pension earlier to account for the gap in life expectancy. Is that right? Absolutely. Now, we know that in order to do that, that is not closing the gap itself. No. So there needs to be a lot more work done, and that's why, you know, that particular gap, as I said, is directly connected to the discrimination and disadvantage faced by Aboriginal people today across every area of their lives. Now, what we would expect is, is that this case itself is about ensuring that Aboriginal people are better supported, that they have dignity, that they've got the same rights to somebody else like somebody else would at an earlier time because of the government has just not been able to close that gap. Absolutely. And and let's be honest here. You know, we've, we've already talked about this, but basically, you know, the current rules relating to the age pension don't reflect the fact that Aboriginal people have much shorter lives than other Australians. Exactly, and it's also you know one one of the one of the key issues in this as well is you know Uncle Dennis, who's the Waka Waka who's you know brought this case. He's sixty four years old, and you know it's it's not unusual that when he talks about his story and so many people passing away in community at such an early age, that isn't just taking place years ago. This is happening in today's society, and the point we're trying to make is that everyone should have the same you know, access and the same human rights protections, including the right you know, to social security and the right to adequate housing. I mean, we're, we're talking about our elderly members of society. We're talking about people that have contributed. And, and you know, like Uncle Dennis, he was saying that, you know, um, he's part of the solemn wages. And when he started working at the age of 10, he was being paid $2.00. $2 a fortnight, and then it got raised to $4 a fortnight. Now, I don't know how many people would work for that amount of money today. And, you know, just those are the sort of issues that we want to raise and give equal opportunity to our elders in our community to ensure that they feel valued and they've got that dignity. Absolutely. And in particular, because financial insecurity is a significant determining factor, isn't it, in the over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? And it's self-evident that lifting Aboriginal people out of poverty will support achieving the other closing the gap targets. Absolutely. And we know that, as you say, the poverty is the driver for over-incarceration because you have people that don't have any financial or economic stability. We've, you know, and as a result of it, often people are homeless. So they're placed in this really vicarious situation. And if you have someone who's got, you know, significant um, disabilities or mental health issues or medical issues on top of that, and are unable to work to support themselves, then to expect that person to work to 66 or 67 years of age is unreasonable. Absolutely unreasonable indeed. And I, I think what's what's interesting here too is that it's not just about money. It's, you know, things will never get better unless we acknowledge something is wrong. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Uncle Dennis was saying too that this, it's not about money. This isn't about compensation. This is about equity. It's about fairness. You know, it's about being provided something that everyone else will have access to, but for the failure to address the systemic, you know, discrimination that's taking place in Aboriginal people's lives. This is about providing an opportunity for all people, all Aboriginal people, once they start to get up in age, to have some quality and dignity in their lives. And so what would the cut-off age be for the pension should should the the court case um, should the court case succeed? I believe that they're looking at three or four years at least earlier. However, the legal team are also seeking some expertise advice around that particular issue. Okay. Also, um, I'm going to be interviewing Simone Cameron next, who's going to be commenting on a decision um, that's happened with the Tamil family about granting them a visa. But before we do that, would you be able, Leanne, just to comment on the Racial Discrimination Act? I know that historically it was going to be suspended at one time, wasn't it? Could you comment on the Racial Discrimination Act and how the role that can play legally in terms of this federal court case? Absolutely. So... We all remember back when all the jeeps and the army trucks rolled into the Northern Territory for the intervention up there. And what took place up there, as we know, was they suspended the Racial Discrimination Act in order to introduce, you know, the intervention measures. And without the Racial Discrimination Act, as we know, our protections go out the window. We're not protected. So the significance of it is that these particular protections under the Act ensure that our anti-discrimination protections remain in place. By removing the Racial Discrimination Act, you're removing the protection that we have as an identified group of people, and that being Aboriginal people. So this particular section of the Act that we're relying on, as I said, it says, you know, if Commonwealth introduces a law and that law is unfairly, you know, someone, a group of people can't actually enjoy that particular right as other people, then that should be changed. And that's what we're arguing, is that we can't, as Aboriginal people, enjoy the right to the age pension if we can't live long enough to be eligible for it. So removing that section removes our protection and our right under the human rights protection. Thank you for letting us know that because that's, listeners do need to know the role that is played by the Racial Discrimination Act. And, and when does the decision get handed down? It's been lodged, so it is going to be a little while before the court makes its decision and takes that direction. So I you know, encourage everyone to stay tuned into this space because... No doubt there will be, you know, some very interesting developments along the way. Um, and, and this... Oh, sorry, I was, I was going to say, you know, just when we're talking about the Racial Discrimination Act, you know, yes. um, Uncle Dennis talked about, like, he was born almost a decade just after the referendum there. So, you know, just prior to that, as we know, Aboriginal people weren't even considered citizens. So, you know, the Racial Discrimination Act becomes even more significant when we're talking about the protection of our rights that we know have been stripped from us before and as a result of that has led to our poor life expectancy. Absolutely. And, and that's a really important point. Before we finish, um, just wanted to just ask you to comment briefly on... Um, a quote from Jill Gallagher, who the, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, where yep. she says that the Royal Commission into Aged Care has laid bare the serious disadvantages experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jill's very much hit it on the head that there were several recommendations made in order to improve the lives and to give access to health services. And when we're talking about access to health services, we're talking about culturally appropriate access to health services. 
at 50 years of age, our Aboriginal elders, like, they can go and access health services, um, but they can't access, as a, like, the age pension itself. Now, when the COVID hit, we know that the government advised people 70 years and older to make sure they were isolated and protected, but for our mob, it was 50. And there were so many recommendations, both within the age and every every set of recommendations that's come out, whether it's the age care, whether it's the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death and Custody, there's so many crucial recommendations that have been made that have been failed to be implemented in order to improve the lives, you know, improve the lives of Aboriginal people. So when Jill talks about that, she's talking about providing opportunities and providing, you know, a better, a better. Um, living and quality of living for, you know, elderly people. And those recommendations haven't been put in place. Absolutely not. I mean, how how much news do we hear on other media outlets, whether that be television or radio, in regards to Aboriginal people being included in the Royal Commission um, when it comes to ageing? Not much. No. And I think that is a continual failure of our government is that, um, look, we talk about self-determination. Self-determination is about community-led initiatives, but it's also around consultations. So when you actually fail to consult with us about what's working in our communities and what's not working and then implement something and it doesn't quite go right, it's sort of boggles my mind that, you know, then we go back and we go, oh, what's wrong with this? The problem exactly. is, is that it's that complete lack of disregard in that consultation. Absolutely, and we need to... Um, it's Elders play, you know, elders play a very critical role in sustaining the world's oldest living culture. Absolutely, but elders have also... Fundamentally, they, they've done their time. Yeah. They they have contributed to society in various ways. And I'd hate to think that anyone's elders on the basis of any age would be discriminated against or would not feel valued in society. And fundamentally, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to value. It comes down to dignity. It comes down to respect as a community to show our elderly people that we do care about them, that we are going to look after them. Absolutely. Leanne, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's, it's been great having you, and I'm hoping we can have you back very soon. Thank you very much. Let us know what's going on with the court case. Thanks so much. Absolutely. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic... You can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. with the Doing Time Show and you just heard an interview with Leanne Carter from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, hello, Simone, welcome to the program. I'm so sorry for the wait. Hi, Marissa, thanks. It's lovely to have you. Now, Simone, um, you've got a very important role to play today on our show because we were, you and I were speaking off-air um, about the family from... What's the pronunciation? Billalia? How do you say it? Simone, are you there? 
Oh, sorry. I just your voice just cut out. <laughs> yeah, you there? No, it's it's Billalia. Is that how you pronounce it? The Queensland Billalila. Um, yeah, Billalila. Yeah. That's that, in that name. <laughs> That's all right. Now, I believe the Tamil family has had um, a visa extended there, or only three members of that family. And I was wondering because yeah. you you are aware and you know this family quite well. Would you just yeah. be able to give a little bit of background to listeners about what's been going on? Sure. Well, they've had quite a protracted um, battle to stay in Australia since they were snatched from their home in Biloela in the early hours um, of the morning. Um, that was the 5th of March in 2018. And the government tried to deport them um, a couple of times, but last-minute legal intervention has prevented that from, from happening. So um, I guess there's been a, a growing campaign which started with some um, requests from, with, from some friends of the family in Biloela um, before they were taken to the, to the minister to ask him to intervene favourably for them um, because their asylum claims were, were not looking like they were going to be successful. Um, yeah, so here we are three and a half years later. Uh, the family were had been taken to Christmas Island back in 2019 after the most recent deportation attempt and they'd been there ever since. So they came over to um, to Perth in June this year because Sanika, the youngest girl, was unwell and needed some um, tertiary hospital care. Then the rest of the family were brought over. Then the minister exercised his power to grant three members of the family, that's Nadez, Kopika and, and sorry, Nadez, Priya and Kopika, a bridging visa. But at the same time that he did that, he brought down the bar again so that they would not be able to apply for any further extensions of their bridging visas after they expired. They were due to expire on the 22nd of September. So it was kind of like giving with one hand and taking with the other, I guess. Um, Tarnika, the youngest one, was not issued a bridging visa. She was put into community detention. So that means that she has to stay um, at an address given by the minister, and that address is in Perth. So ostensibly that keeps the whole family from being able to go anywhere except Perth because if one member of the family is in community detention, I guess they all are. So the family's legal team, who are just wonderful at looking at all possible avenues, they um, challenged the minister's decision to bring down the bar um, and that was heard in court on the 16th of September. And in that hearing, the judge said that um, she wouldn't be able to make her decision quickly, that she needed time to consider the argument. And so that she sort of put it on the minister to um, come up with some sort of solution about the expiring bridging visas. So... The minister ended up giving this undertaking that he would extend the bridging visas um, to give the judge time to consider all the arguments. And it's quite ironic, really, because we were going to court to challenge his decision not to allow the family to apply for more bridging visas. But in order to let the court process play out, he's actually granted further bridging visas. And then when it came to the time when the family went to their appointment where the bridging visas were going to be granted, they didn't get a further three months. They were given 12 months, which was quite unexpected and, you know, very welcome. But unfortunately, even though that's wonderful, Tanika still remains in community detention. So while the family can enjoy, you know, some certainty of tenure in Australia for the next 12 months, they're still stuck in Perth. Sorry, it's such a long story. <laughs> it is. No, but it's, it's great that you've, you've explained it, Simone. Um, I mean, Australian law, doesn't Australian law give the Minister Hawke the power to bring this to an end with the stroke of a pen just by yeah. issuing the same visa to the four-year-old child yeah. that he's granted yes, to her absolutely. mum and dad and sister? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, migration law is a particularly complex area of law, as I understand, but this section that he used to grant the three bridging visas is, is called Section 195A of the Migration Act. And basically, if he 
deems that it's in the public interest, and I, as I understand, courts have said that it's for the minister to, to decide. Nobody else can tell him what the public interest is. So if he deems it to be in the public interest, he can grant these visas to people. So how ridiculous and bizarre is it that he would think it's in the public interest to grant three bridging visas to a member of a family, but that the fourth member that it wasn't in the public interest for them to be granted a bridging visa. And he actually, um, the day that, uh, which was last Wednesday, the 23rd, um, sorry, Thursday, the 23rd, he actually, um, on that same day that he granted this 12-month extension, he also notified the family's legal team that he had considered Parnica's uh, request for a bridging visa and that he was declining to exercise his powers there. So it's not just that he hasn't gotten round to looking at the application for Tanaka yet. It's, it's that, you know, it seems like a really calculated, cruel decision to say, yes, the three of you are going to get one, Tanaka not, so all of you are stuck in Perth, when all they want to do is just get back to Biloela, and it's what we've been asking for for three and a half years now. Biloela, that's how, that's it. I've got a mental block with this all day. It's a tricky one. <laughs> So Biloela is where you all live, right? You live there too? Well, I'm not living there now, but I, but you I were? grew up there. Yes, yep. Yeah. And and you, you knew the family, you interacted with the family, they were hard workers and they were an asset to the community. Yeah, I. Um, so Nadez arrived first and so I met him um, not long after he arrived because I was a migrant English teacher. Um, I had been running a um, an English program at the Meatworks that's owned by Tees in Biloela, and they've always struggled to get um, to get workers. So they had a very high migrant workforce. After I finished running that English program, I then um, we were able to get some, some government funding to run some um, English classes for people who were on bridging visas, people seeking asylum, like Nadez. And the Meatworks entered into an arrangement with the um, with the refugee settlement organisations to actually give um, people seeking asylum jobs at the Meatworks if they wanted to. So they would sort of bust them up from places like Brisbane and um, and I was able to, with this funding, then offer them some English classes. So Nadez came along to those English classes when he could. He was very busy because he, um, he was working at the Meatworks, he was pushing trolleys at Woolworths at night time and he was just working every hour that God sent, as they say. Um, yeah, so such a hard worker. He had, at times, he was going through his own legal stuff with his own uh, protection claims, and there were times when he was unable to work because of the conditions of his bridging visa, and, you know, at, at those times, like, he was still able to go and volunteer. So he used to volunteer at the local St Vincent's um, charity shop in Biloela. So, yeah, they're absolutely salt-of-the-earth people. There's no doubt about that. And, and to, to have them taken, you know, they were going to be de take, deported and also then that mm. was stopped and they'll end up languishing at Christmas Island and the little girl got sick, Tanya yeah. got sick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Pneumonia. Yeah. And then they went to the hospital there in Western Australia. And then you've got... It's very cruel and unusual punishment, isn't it? I wonder whether the the federal government is wanting to send a message out to people going on boats to Australia, asylum seekers going on boats. It, it really yeah. is most appalling. Yeah, I think, I mean, they say that they want to send a message to people um, to people who might be considering coming to Australia by sea or, or to mm. people smugglers. But, I, I mean, I don't imagine that those people are really hearing about this family. I, I think more that it's a bit of a dog whistle to certain voters in Australia who who want this tough stuff, who have bought into this very cruel rhetoric, you know, and who think that perhaps we've only got two very stark choices here. And um, But I do think that over time the public pressure, because there's been an enormous amount of support that has built for the family in the last three and a half years, and we, we run um, social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram um, to, you know, put out information and to advocate for the family. And we're always getting some really interesting messages from people all around Australia, all around the world, actually, who are um, 
you know, quite taken by the story of Mrs. Kriya and Kopika and Danica. And I think that those people um, continuing to advocate for them, that, you know, it has sort of wedged the government a little bit. And, um, you know, I do think that perhaps this decision to extend the bridging visas to, to 12 months is, is a bit of a sign that they're really feeling the pressure. We've had billboards up with pictures of the family. We've had full-page ads in lots of very big newspapers in the last week and um, do wonder if that's had something to do with it. Um, but we've still got a bit of a way to go yet, Stina. Absolutely. We've got a long way to go. And I, I do have serious concerns about, about the family in, in Western Australia. Do they have the support they need there? They've got yeah. They've started to make some friends with some lovely, um, lovely people that they've been able to make contact with, and um, that's wonderful. They're enjoying the freedom of not being followed by guards, by popping to the shops when they want to go, um, all that sort of stuff that was um, denied to them the last few years. But I think it's just that sense of you know that's not really their home, and and Biluila is home, and that's where. Um, all the people who, who know and love them and who have been fighting for their return are. And unfortunately, with all of the COVID border closures, you know, we can't get over to see them. Angela and Bashini were able to get over back in June, um, but there's myself and, and another woman, Bromwyn, who was their, um, their social worker, and we're, we're dying to get over there to visit them, but we can't. We'd have to do hotel quarantine at the moment, coming from Queensland. So... Um, yeah, so we will keep pushing until um, until hopefully we can get that fourth bridging visa issued and then the whole family would be free to come straight back to Biloela. I hope that does happen. I mean, from from what you have seen, Simone, will there still be more um, legal challenges? Yes, there are. So this bridging visa challenge, which was first heard on the 16th of September, it wasn't able to be concluded by the end of the day. So it's set down for the 4th of October and they will wrap it up then that day with their concluding arguments and whatnot. And then the judge will make a decision at some stage afterwards. Um, also, a matter which will come before the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or the AAT will be a citizenship matter. Now, before the family were taken from Biloela, the government had the girls to Australian birth certificates on file and they used those birth certificates to actually, without Priya and Nadez's consent, by the way, they used those birth certificates to go and register the girls' birth in Sri Lanka. So once they were able to do that, that was able. They, they did that to facilitate the family's removal from Australia that they tried to later do in March 2018. So once the family's legal team got wind of this, um, we put in a privacy uh, complaint to the Privacy Commissioner, so that's one separate thing that's, that's going through. But they also realised that the registration of the girls' births in Sri Lanka was not necessarily lawful, particularly for Kopika, the eldest one, because um, because of the age that she was at when, when the births were registered. So if the girls are not entitled to Sri Lankan citizenship, it means that they're stateless um, because they're not... They're, Australia doesn't have birthright um, citizenship anymore. So if they're stateless, under Australia's Citizenship Act, it's possible that the girls would be entitled to Australian citizenship on that ground. So they've put in an application for Australian citizenship for the two girls and the department has rejected that so far and now the matter will go before the AEP. And, um, yeah, we're waiting for a hearing date for that, but I think um, I think there might be one before the end of the year, but that's not so clear yet. So... Sorry. Yeah. So they registered the, the certificates in Sri Lanka? Yes. And, yes. and so that Without would mean that they would be stateless then? Pardon? That they would be stateless then? Well, if the... I mean, they, they do have the registration. So the registration yeah. was, was, was given by the Sri Lankan authorities. Oh. But, there, but there are some pretty compelling legal arguments as to why that registration was actually invalid and shouldn't have been accepted in Sri Lanka. So Absolutely. Yeah, so it will be something that will be very interesting to watch. And, of course, 
if we were successful on this challenge, then, um, you know, it, it would look like it would give the family some pretty, well, the girls at least, some pretty secure footing in Australia. But we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> let's hope so. And let's hope that the, that the parents also remain as well and that everybody, that they, that they all go home. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, there's no need, I think, one thing that we've all learned is that the legal team have been absolutely outstanding in, um, you know, pursuing every single legal avenue that um, is possible or is before them. But so far, the courts have been fairly limited in what they can look at. You know, they can't look at the merits of families' refugee claims. Only the only the department and the, and the tribunals can do that. And... Um, I just feel like the courts haven't really given the solution that the family needs and that reminds us that the minister's always had the power and that there's no need for the minister and for us. We have to fundraise all the money for the family. That's how we pay their legal bills. There's no need for this to be fought out in the courts anymore. If he just granted that last bridging visa, you know, it would all yeah. go away. A gross violation of human rights indeed. Oh, it really is. Uh, yeah, it's a gross violation of lots of things. <laughs> Simone, thank you so much for coming onto the program, and and you've expl- you've given a very concise, thorough explanation um, of of the the family's um, plight. And let's let's watch this space. Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thanks fingers so much. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Health Before Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. You're back with the Doing Time show. It's goodbye from Marissa. And we're going to be going out now with our theme song, Blackfella, Whitefella by the Rumpy Band. Thank you to all our guests today. And tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. Bye. Stay strong.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.